My bulky blender was such a pain to use, I ended up hardly ever using it at all. But the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender makes blending so easy and convenient, I use it just about every day. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. It lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C cord. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Blendjet 2 to complement just about any style. I absolutely love the Lisa Frank edition. What are you waiting for? Go to Blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code ANALYTICS12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to Blendjet.com and use the code ANALYTICS12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. You are now listening to This Week Explained. Hello, and welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana with Curvin as my co-host, and together we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. Let's get to what's on the agenda this week, Curvin. All right, we got Russia-Ukraine and Israel-Hamas, the two conflicts going on right now. But after that, we're going to get into the NATO talk, because Sweden just got Turkey's vote and approval for ascension into NATO. We'll get into the implications of that. Uh, Then we'll get back to the Middle East, where there is a possibility that the U.S. could withdraw from Iraq. Um, Also going on in the the Middle East, the the U.N. group that is said to be working to help the Palestinians, well, some of those members were ousted from that group because of their allegiance to Hamas. Once we're done with that, we'll get into North Korea. Um, I think over the last three weeks, we've talked a lot about North Korea and their possible uh, desire for war. Uh, That is still in talks right now, and we'll get into discussions on what they could be thinking in a possible war against South Korea. And then I wanted to end it because there's a lot of discussion going on about China. We've talked about moving, how the dates have moved to 2025. There's a lot of misinformation coming out now about how likely that is happening, and I just want to put some information out there. All right, well, let's get right into it. What is the latest coming out of Ukraine? Well, so, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that the war is at a stalemate. Uh, There's not much to discuss on the battlefield over the last few weeks, but that does not mean that there aren't events going on on the front line. Uh, That just means that those events that are happening um, on the battlefield, they just don't move the, the needle as far as improving either side standing on the ground. But the big news this week has to do with recent reports that Putin may be ready to go to the table to discuss peace 
with his Ukrainian counterpart. Really? I mean, what can you tell us about that? Is this legitimate or just more of Putin's lovely, well-known stalling tactics? Yeah, great question. Um, so I can say that the, the Kremlin denies these reports. So it is tough to say if they're actual discussions ongoing. But here's where we stand. There are insiders within Russia that are reporting that Putin is exploring the possibility of engaging in talks with the United States to end Russia's war in Ukraine. Now, some analysts like myself are viewing these reports as potential trial balloons. Um, <laughs> well, I think you know what I'm going to ask next. What the heck is a trial balloon? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Trial balloons refer to the deliberate release of information to test public reaction or to assess the potential impact before making an official announcement. Uh, in the context of what we're discussing with Putin, it involves floating an idea or kind of signaling a possible course of action through informal or indirect channels like these insiders to gauge how various stakeholders, um, both domestic and international, so the people of Russia and governments outside, might respond to what he is saying. And why would Putin utilize a trial balloon? Why would he do that? Well, he has an election coming up. Um, he's going to want to show that support for his presidency is as high as it was at the start of this war. So he can start gauging public opinion within Russia right now in order to see what course of action is most popular before that election. If peace negotiations are a popular thing uh, among the Russian population, Putin can then shape the narrative. He can present Russia as a diplomatic actor that's open to peaceful solutions. Uh, now, this can be sort of a form of information warfare. That means he's trying to attempt to control the narrative surrounding the conflict in Ukraine. But I feel like his whole thing throughout this conflict has been, we are not going to stop until we reclaim our lands in Ukraine. Why? Yeah, I just... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. No, 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 no. What? what were you going to say? Um, yeah, what, what he's seeing right now is this disillusionment from the families that are sending their loved ones to right. coming back. Um, right. So they're becoming more vocal and outspoken, and I think that's what's shifting the narrative. I really don't think him just floating this idea is going to help change people's perception of him, <laughs> honestly. Like, they know I mean, his tricks by now. He's been in power for how long? 20 years? Well, I mean, off and on in power since like the 90s, yeah. A, long, a really long time. So I just, yeah. I don't know. People do like forget. <laughs> yeah. And we right fall now. into the, so yeah, we fall into the same patterns that we were in before. So maybe they, I don't know. I just feel like him floating this idea to see what people's perception of him is, is futile. I mean, I would agree, especially on an international level. He's not right. going to change the hearts and minds of the people in the U.S. or Canada or the U.K. Right. Okay. Well, anyways, good luck to him, I guess. Good, good luck. <laughs> so, so what is being discussed as, you know, the popular, pop, ugh, possible, sorry, <laughs> my tongue got stuck to the roof of my mouth. I'm eating between questions. <laughs> <laughs> Breakfast. Breakfast soup. <laughs> breakfast soup, yeah. Um, so what what are what's being discussed as the possible stipulations in a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine? Because he's draw, he's drawn that hard line multiple times. 
saying it's got to be this way. We are not going to walk, go to the negotiating table. We are not going to give Ukraine back their land. We are going to only accept if Ukraine allows us to, you know, take back what we think is rightfully ours. So yeah. that's still what's he, what he's saying, because if so, then we're still where we were a few months ago. And this isn't right. anything new. And this, what did you call it again? Trial balloon is just yeah. pointless. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there have been some changes to what Putin would accept. Um, some analysts believe that Putin may consider demanding a neutral status, uh, or I'm sorry, may reconsider that neutral status demand that he's had for Ukraine, that they, you know, Ukraine has to remain neutral. Um, that he may even drop his opposition to Ukraine's NATO membership. Those are those are huge. But in doing that, that would probably require Ukraine accepting Russian control over those occupied territories. And we know we've discussed this all the time. Ukraine has said they will not accept that. You know, they're not going to agree to that. Okay, well, with um, peace talks possibly on the table, let's get to the other huge conflict with possible peace negotiations. What is happening in Gaza now that we are three and a half months into the war in Gaza? Yeah, you make an astute observation because that's been the talk, ceasefire negotiation. Um, there's been a lot of back and forth in these negotiations. Israel and Hamas were reportedly close to brokering a month-long ceasefire that would involve the exchange of Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. Now, disagreements still persist on negotiating stages and the conditions for the permanent ceasefire. Um, Hamas seeks what they call a package deal for a permanent ceasefire before releasing hostages, while Israel prefers negotiating one stage at a time. So Hamas is taking issue with Israel's continued operations moving south toward the Egyptian border. That's what they have a problem with. Hamas wants the complete removal of Israeli troops from the Gaza Strip during the first phase of the agreement. So even before they transfer the hostages, they want Israel to completely move out of Gaza. That won't happen. <laughs> right. Um, it, it seems that the proposal on both sides has been turned down. Israeli officials maintain that there is still a possibility for the two sides to negotiate to achieve that. Well, there are always two sides to this. So what has been Israel's proposal? So Israel's proposed that senior Hamas leaders should leave Gaza as part of the ceasefire agreement. I thought they already weren't in. I thought they already weren't in Gaza. I thought they were somewhere else. I guess I should rephrase it. Yeah, the Hamas leaders are in, you know, other places like Qatar and things like that. But Hamas, they so they want Hamas completely out of Gaza. No more Hamas in Gaza. That's what Israel is asking for. Um, much like Hamas is asking all the uh, the IDF to be pulled from Gaza. And gotcha. That came from Israel's intelligence chief. Uh, uh, just like he said for you know Israel leaving, that proposal is unlikely to be accepted by Hamas. So both sides putting out stuff, just not going to be uh be accepted their wi- they put out their wish list and the other right. side's like nope not happening happening now i i will say the the fact remains that pressure is mounting on israeli prime minister benjamin netanyahu to find a resolution that pressure is coming from within israel 
um, because the conflict has not led to a uh, quote-unquote complete victory, as he promised, over Hamas. That sounds familiar. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, I think we talked about the, that familiarity a few minutes ago in another conflict. Yeah. Um, so, why is that public frustration is growing? Um, because the people in Israel want the hostages brought back home. And it's, of course. The, there's an inability to bring home those hostages that are held in Gaza. Well... While that gets sort out over the next few weeks, hopefully, let's get into another negotiation that seems to have taken a lifetime to bear fruit. It looks like Turkey has finally voted to accept Sweden and NATO. So does this mean Sweden is now a NATO country or do they still have some things they got to do? Yeah, it's not. They're not quite there yet, um, even though this was seen as the largest hurdle. Um, the fact remains there's another Russian-friendly country that's holding up Sweden's ascension, and that country is Hungary. Then how much longer until we know for sure whether Sweden will be a NATO country or not? It's um, it's still uncertain. Uh, there's a report late, late, well, I guess early this morning over in Europe that um, by March it could happen. But we just don't know how much uh, longer it's going to take for Sweden to know for sure whether it will become a NATO country. Uh, right now, Hungary is uh, currently the only obstacle to its NATO membership after that parliamentary approval from Turkey. So Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Christensen has accepted an invitation to meet Hungarian President, or I'm sorry, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban to discuss that NATO bid. Now, Christensen uh, sent a letter to Orban. He expressed that the completion of the ratification process in the Hungarian parliament should strengthen bilateral relations and mutual understanding. Uh, while Turkey has already approved Sweden's NATO membership, Hungary's parliament mentioned that there is no urgency in supporting Sweden's bid. I don't think that it has to happen right now. It can wait. Uh, but the meeting between Christensen and Orban, which is scheduled in Budapest, may provide more clarity on that timeline. What is Hungary's holdup? Why are they doing it Russia. For, for Russia? They're doing it specifically for Russia? Yeah, so Orban's been meeting with Putin. Um, they've been talking back and forth. And this is the same thing that Erdogan was doing um, before yeah. we, we just got that vote. So it's not off the table. Uh, you know, Putin doesn't have this stronghold over those two countries. So we'll see what happens. Well, let's say Sweden gets the vote from Hungary. Does this change the landscape in the Baltics? And does it worry Putin at all? As he said, that his main reason for invading Ukraine was to deter further NATO expansion. It's a great question. Um, and I say great question because this week... Well, one of the main reasons, like it's not the yeah. main reason, but it's one of the big ones. <laughs> that was his top reason, you know. Um, but when, when that didn't fall... It, then it became, well, there's Nazis there and Ukraine's corrupt and all that kind of stuff. But his main reason, he's he's held steadfast that it was NATO expansion. You are correct. Um, and you asked if Putin is worried. Well, he made an impromptu trip to Kaliningrad, and that is a Russian enclave bordering Poland. Dan, was this a deterrence measure or maybe Putin warning Europe about the possibility of war if NATO gets closer to Russia's border, maybe? That's, yeah, another great observation because um, that's what a lot of journalists are asking right now. 
I don't think Putin's visit to Kaliningrad is so much a warning of war with Europe, but um, more so up like a public vow of support to the people of Kaliningrad. We go back to that election. He's going to need it to show that he has a high support. Um, and I think that's what part of this trip is. Um, it is, uh, you know, as we discussed, it could be a possible warning to Hungary, who is now the only holdout in approving Sweden's NATO ascension. Um, if Sweden is approved into NATO, it would effectively turn the Baltic Sea into what is being called the, quote, NATO lake. So the trip by by Putin is a clear attempt to signal to the people of Kaliningrad that the Baltic Sea is not going to be that NATO lake. It's not going to be controlled by NATO, even after Finland and Sweden applied to join two countries that were very neutral at, at one point. Um, I think it also served as a reminder to the residents of Kaliningrad that they are part of Russia. Um, if you look at a map, Kaliningrad is not within the continental Russian, I guess. Um, it, it's actually surrounded by Poland. Um, so he wants to let those residents know they are Russian, they are part of Russia. He also wants to demonstrate that Russia still has significant military assets in that enclave. Okay, well... Do you think that Europe should brace for war? I mean, I know me personally, I've seen a lot of news clips from all around the world of um, leaders saying that, you know, their countries need to prepare for a possible conflict. Uh, Do you think that we are on the brink of a broader European conflict? Yeah, you know, you're you're seeing that stuff. Um, I've been receiving some emails for the same question that you just asked. So so very you're in the know, Tiana. I know you You try to say... I literally have nothing else to do right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're doing a good job in uh, observing what is going on, but I don't think we are on the cusp of a war between NATO and Russia at this point. Now, that could all change, and that's depending on what China does, which, despite the talk of China's military corruption and lowering population rates, the U.S. military is readying for... That 2025 conflict in the Indo-Pacific, that happens. Um, at that point, Russia could be then turned to the European front of a global conflict. <sighs> okay, well, we have a lot to get into before we talk more about China. So let's discuss what is going on in the Middle East. Iranian-backed proxies continue to carry out strikes against coalition forces in Iraq and Syria. Now we are getting reports that Iraq wants the U.S. out of its country for good. Is there any truth to these reports? And if so, what does that mean for the Middle East as a whole? So the the short answer is that the U.S. and Iraq are set to begin formal talks, which could eventually lead to the withdrawal of the remaining 2,500 American troops in Iraq. Uh, The talks come after recent missile attacks on a U.S. base that done by Iranian-backed forces in Iraq. Now, despite the attacks, U.S. officials are saying that negotiations might have started sooner if Hamas didn't carry out the attack on October 7th, meaning those officials are trying to distance themselves from the talk that they're abandoning Israel right now because of what's going on in Gaza. That's what Iran is trying to promote as the reason for this departure of U.S. troops. Now, the decision to withdraw troops will depend on a few factors. Um... The main one is the threat of the Islamic State, which that's the sole reason that U.S. troops are in Iraq. Um, another one is U.S. operational requirements. So if they're what that means is if the U.S. needs to have troops in the Middle East, they're going to stay 
in Iraq. And then finally, um, the U.S. is going to want to see that the capabilities of Iraqi security forces are up to standard, and that's to prevent further terror attacks in the region. All right, well, let's stay in the Middle East and discuss this new development within the U.N. The United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East. And yes, people, that is an organization's name. Full name. It's so long. Okay, anyways. They ousted several members for possible involvement in the Hamas attack on October 7th. What do you know? Some people are playing both sides. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, so I think it was early December we talked about how some within the UN appeared to be not pro-Palestine, but pro-Hamas. That's a key differentiator, right? Being pro-Palestine versus pro-Hamas. Yes. Now, publicly, we are seeing that, or we're being made aware that multiple members within UNRWA, that's the abbreviation for that long agency uh-huh. uh, may have been directly involved in the attacks on Israel on October 7th. Let me say again, directly involved in the attacks, not just supporting it. Um, that's a far cry from being a Hamas sympathizer. Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, they facilitated yes the terror attack on them, for sure. That's crazy. So, what does this mean for the UN as a whole? And um, does this change the direction of that South African decision to hold Israel accountable for war crimes? Well, let's start with the with the UN. Uh, okay. Right now, the US, as well as um, Italy and Canada, and I believe Germany, is suspending funding for the UN due, or well, that UN agency, due to these allegations. Um, UNRWA, for what it's worth, has initiated an investigation based on information provided by Israel. Um, And and as you said, several employees have been terminated from that agency. The UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez has called for a swift investigation and emphasized the need to dismiss and potentially prosecute any of those employees involved in the attacks. Um, And and they should be. Exactly. Prosecuted if they were directly involved, for sure. And unless it's not just the U.S., and I saw Germany and Italy, but all of the European Union, um, all of which are major donors to this agency, are expressing very deep concern, um, and they do support a thorough investigation. Now, you asked about the South Africa um, case. So as for that case, which uh, was brought against Israel in regards to genocide, the International Court of Justice recently ruled over the, I believe it was yesterday, that Israel must increase efforts to protect Palestinians and provide humanitarian aid to Gaza. Um, The the big thing that happened here in this big uproar in the Middle East is that the court did not call for an immediate ceasefire. What they did was they affirmed it would continue hearing South Africa's genocide case. Uh, The court says it doesn't favor either side, but that it wants to reinvigorate the debate over international law in conflict. Um, the final decision on the in, on this genocide case still years away, um, and the conflict actually may be over before any decision is made. So the, that's something to, to keep looking for. The, the court's orders, um, although it's legally binding, 
it's very challenging to enforce just like the the court order for putin um you know to have him arrested that hasn't been enforced has it no um but also another thing is that the u.s can veto that vote and probably will because they historically support israel well, I think that about sums up that discussion. So I really want to get into this new development within North Korea. This is the third week in a row, I, I believe. Third, third, yeah, third week in a row, I believe, where we discuss North Korea and war. Yeah. You seem to remain on the fence about whether or not North Korea will actually take action or if they're just, you know, puffing up their chests. Right. So what... What is the latest, and has this moved the needle at all for a possible conflict on the Korean Peninsula? We have lots of needles that are moving towards conflict right now. <laughs> yeah, we we certainly do. But as as it stands right now, I'm not closer to upping my prediction of war on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, I've got it at possible, so that's less than 50%. Um, U.S. officials are closely monitoring North Korea. That's because their leader, Kim Jong-un, has shifted to a more aggressive stance against South Korea. Uh, This is what is raising concerns of potential lethal military action. Now, I do believe there there is no immediate risk of a full-scale war, but um, these recent declarations by Kim Jong-un are more provocative than they've ever been before. Um, I do think that we should be keeping an eye on it and taking it seriously. It, It is apparent to me that North Korea's growing partnership with Russia is actually emboldening Kim Jong-un. He feels that Russia will come to his aid. Absolutely, yeah. that's what's happening. Yeah. Um, now, d- despite concerns, there is no concrete evidence of North Korea gearing up for major combat. That's easily to identify because you'll see a buildup of forces, right? Of military forces. Uh, multiple U.S. officials are trying to engage in dialogue with North Korea, but Kim does not trust the United States. Right. Uh, Yeah. The feeling's mutual. (laughs) The feeling's mutual. Maybe we could come together on that. Yeah. Um, Right now, the situation on the Korean Peninsula is highly dangerous. Uh, the, The speculation about Kim potentially making a strategic decision to go to war is uh, is very dangerous. We're not at panic levels just yet at this point. Okay, well, with that in mind, last week you made it clear that China is on a trajectory for an invasion of Taiwan by 2025, but recent reports from various publications about China's military corruption and population decrease have other analysts countering your prediction. So I want to give you some time to either backtrack on what you have said the last two weeks or double down on it in light of this new information. Yeah, so I appreciate the setup there. Um, Mm -hmm. I have to say, to me, it feels eerily like the precursor to the invasion of Ukraine. Okay, well, how so? Well, you know, multiple publications leading up to that ran reports that Putin did not have the desire to invade Ukraine or that the Russian economy precluded him from invading Ukraine. And then we. But then the Olympics happened. The Olympics <laughs> happened, and we found out February of 2022 they those publications were wrong. Yeah, right. Um, and that's what I see happening here. Listen, I always say intelligence is not an exact science. Uh, we just take information and it can conti- continually change. Um, I don't have a crystal ball. That tells me what will or will not happen in 2025. 
I don't know. Your intuition's usually pretty spot on. You and, have and, pretty great intuition. One might say, what what is it? Like? Mother's intuition. Yeah, mother's. <laughs> you I, have access. Good. You are very good about that with the kids, for sure. Yeah, I know um, that has nothing to do with world conflict, but you have very good intuition. You're usually pretty good at calling how you think people are going to act. And I think that's... Gonna do. Sorry, I, th- I just think that's because uh, of the amount of information I take in. Um, I don't know. I do go on gut feeling sometimes and it works out, right? <laughs> um I say that what I what I'm seeing now and what I have is a plethora of information that points me towards the belief that she is ready to make the call on Taiwan really, really soon. Could that all change? Absolutely. And I'm going to be 100 percent upfront and honest. I will update my analysis as new information comes up. All this talk about China not being prepared to invade Taiwan just seems to me like a misinformation campaign to distract allies of Taiwan in the region or to at least make them um, let their guard down. What I what I can say right now in this open source is that the, the U.S. is not letting its guard down on China. Within every military service in the U.S., there is a planning and preparation for a full-scale near-peer conflict with China. What, <clears throat> excuse me, um, what information could get you to change your mind well, um, honestly, less aggressive actions by China and the South China Sea, which yesterday they were they were more aggressive. I think they sent 33 planes towards Taiwan. So that's not happening right now. Um, also, if I start to see a redistribution of forces away from Taiwan, that's a, a huge trigger to change my mind. Um, also, if I'm if I start to see that U.S. forces are standing down within the Indo-Pacific, especially naval forces, I'll start to change my analysis. All of those put together would move me away from probable and more to possible, even even unlikely if that happens. So can you can you give us the scale, like the words you use on the scale from least likely to most likely, because I'm getting confused with possible and probable because they both sound similar to me. (laughs) Yes, I'll break it down a little bit. Um, and you can stop me when I'm rambling for very too for too long. But. Oh, don't worry. You know that's my favorite part. <laughs> yeah. This is actually um, something I developed while working with special operations um, and doing analysis. That uh, between you know zero to fifteen percent, I have things at unlikely. Um, so if I'm anywhere between that percent likelihood of something happening. That would be unlikely. Okay. Um, from that 15% up to about 50%, um, I'm at possible. So it is possible, uh, but we need more information. Once it goes above 50%, I call it probable, meaning it is likely to happen. Um, and without Anything changing on the ground or within geopolitics, it will probably happen within a certain time frame. And so those are that's how I do my analysis. Other people do it differently. They have different wording, different percentages. This is just me personally how I do it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Um, so w- with all that, and I'm glad you asked for that breakdown because I'm sure some people are thinking the same thing. And I want to be, be. I don't think I've. 
Yeah, I don't think I've ever asked you what your scale was. <laughs> so, so thank you for clarifying. Yeah, not, I thought I that was just I thought that was just, you know, Intel speak. I didn't realize you came up with your own scale. So, it was probably pretty important for you to tell us what your scale is. Yeah, it's, <laughs> since it's it, not, you know, common knowledge even in the Intel world, everybody's got their own little scale that they make, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, I, and I fall into that army education where we just, you know, how all the acronyms and stuff and we just uh, everybody knows it. Actually, I don't know the acronyms anymore. Once you left the army, I like kicked all that information out of my brain. Shit out the good. <laughs> I don't I was just like don't need to know this anymore. <laughs> right. Um well getting back to to China after the that Oh yeah, question. China. I uh, the the reason I wanted to bring this up is I just want to to warn people to be very wary of um, of media reports about China in the next 12 to 18 months. Uh, This recent reporting about China having no desire to invade Taiwan came from Bloomberg. That is a uh, U.S. news publication. And this publication was awarded most valuable vendor by China Investment Information Services. Oh wow! So That's the, cool. The 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 CIA they got their fingers. They got their fingers in the pie, right? And and they called. They they said this about Bloomberg. That Bloomberg not only provides accurate and timely market information through its vast, but they also print what we tell them to. <laughs> yeah, Just kidding. No, listen, <laughs> sorry. You, I didn't mean to cut you that, off. But listen to this quote. Okay. But also provides great support for us, China. Mm-hmm. on implementing policies of data usage and on promoting new products. So exactly what you said, that's the quiet part. They okay. don't say out loud. Right. They policies all- of data usage and mm-hmm. on promoting new products. So shoving products down consumers' throats that and then have. taking their data. <laughs> no, basically that. Okay. All right. We see you, Bloomberg. We see you. We see you. Uh, they okay. they take a lot of money from Chinese investment. Um, right. Does that make them allies of the People's Republic of China? No. It's not what I'm saying. They're not these out- yeah. allies. But, you know, it should give everyone pause when reading these analyses. Follow the right. money. I've, always follow the money. Always. And, and I will say, with full disclosure, we have taken no money from any government to release information on this podcast. <laughs> And I'm doing that half joking. Not half joking. No, it's like we don't. I mean, it's not yeah. even a joke. We don't. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah, that do. anyone's come forward and said, you need to push this narrative. No one's said that to us. Yeah. And we do not profit at all no. on this podcast. Um, no. But, uh, I mean, you let me know if I'm speaking too much for you. We have no desire to take money from any government. Right. Because we know what that means. Yeah. If we do that, we're beholden to the information that they want us to release. Exactly. And that's exactly. So that isn't what is happening. Which, no, thank you. All right. A little technical difficulties after we uh, talked Finish. about the government. Yeah. The room closed. Well, no, you froze and couldn't hear anything. And then your like window blacked out. And then... Whenever I left the room and came back in the room, I could hear everything you were doing, but you couldn't hear or see me. Yep. <sighs> it's frustrating. I love it. 
So there we know. We know we're being tracked. <laughs> They're probably so bored tracking us. We are lame. But anyways, um, thank you, Kervin, for all of that. Do you have anything else for this week? That's it for me, um, unless you had anything you wanted to add. I just want to say, you're coming home. Yes. Oh, I know. Finally, finally coming home. Yes. So exciting. Madeline has been writing things to, you know how we have like the family hub in our kitchen yeah. with, with the dry erase board and the big Alexa and, you know, calendars, all that stuff. Madeline's been writing about how much she misses you on it. Oh. So, yeah. So I love that little baby. Yeah, that little 19-year-old baby. She'll always be the baby. She is always the baby. They're all always babies. Mm. Forever are babies. Forever. Parents understand. Yeah, parents, yeah. They really are forever your babies. You just want to squish them all the time. But I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's been going on here. Besides the government trying to hinder our recording. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no. No. All right. Absolutely. Yeah, Just, just I just plan on relaxing for this weekend because I know next weekend's going to be crazy. So, because, you know, why aren't you no. saying anything? Like, what? I was you're not No, you're not contributing. To, well, you know next weekend's crazy. We have to, we're driving oh, yeah. down. Yeah, we're going to Raleigh. And bringing our kids and one of their best friends to a Mitski concert in Shout Europe. out to Mitski. <laughs> exactly. And then they bought more Mitski tickets because they had a lottery that they put their names in for. And, you know, our kids were like, we have Oakland luck, so we're probably not going to win. <laughs> but then they did. They got... Um, they both got tickets. Well, Madeline and her girlfriend, and then um, Natalie and Charlotte got tickets. So that's happening on Madeline's 20th. Oh, God. Let's well, uh. conversation away from that. Um, that's all I have for this week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, that's just nauseating. Oh, I don't like that at all. Saying that out loud ugh, gives me the heebie-jeebies. But we should be proud of ourselves. We kept her alive. That's true. Until, until 20. So that's that's pretty amazing. Um, what else? February's going to be crazy. February is? Oh, just yeah. that. Oh, well, I mean, just the beginning of February. And there's more in February. I mean, I know you have another concert to go to, but that's up here. Yep. Uh, and then. That's it. Right. I don't know. Who knows, though? Because. Same thing happened last year. We started out January pretty chill, and then it just rapidly turned into traveling every single month of the yeah. year. So who knows what's <laughs> on our plate yet? We don't know. Sometimes we don't know until three days before when they say, hey, can you guys be here? And we'll be like, huh, I guess we're so. We're not complaining. Well, we're kind of complaining, I guess, but... We are grateful for the opportunities and everything. Definitely. For sure. Well, I guess that's about it that's going on over here. Sounds good. We try, we try to save our um, personal updates for the end because yeah. a lot of listeners were like, can you shut up about yourselves <laughs> in the beginning? Y'all talk too long. <laughs> so if you're at the end, like we always say, you're a real one if you lasted yep. this long to the end. Heroes. 
the true heroes of this podcast. We appreciate you. But nothing else that you want to add, babe? Nope. Okay. Well, nothing else. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We hope that you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.